Hi, Bruce. It's so hello, nice to hello, see you. Ken. And uh, thanks for taking part in this series. I'm exploring a fundamental question. At least that's where I want to start, which is very suitable for you, I think. And that, and that question, well, it's kind of, actually, it's not. In a way, it's like it's before... I want to ask, what is life? That's what the series is called. But I don't mean, I don't want to start with, you know, where did life come from? I mean something behind all of that. I mean, I mean, you and I are alive at the moment. Something's happening to us. What the hell is it, do you think, that is happening to us? What's, have you made any sense of it at all? You know, uh, I think it, I was born into a kind of an interesting start in my life and that I was given up for adoption. And in sort of uh, later reconstructions, I worked out that I knew when I was given up for adoption, when I was in utero somehow, because when I came out uh, of my mother and was picked up by my adoptive mother, my adoptive mother said, you're in your own world. You were like a spaceship completely self-contained so in some ways i've maintained an observer perspective all that time since so my consciousness if you will if you could call it whatever we call it realms it travels constantly so when i was little i would literally explore the neighborhood but my mind would circle the globe and i, I studied globes and maps i my consciousness was everywhere it was going into space with Neil Armstrong, you know, on the Apollo 11 crew in the late 60s. It was going back through time, it was realming. And uh, so my consciousness is sort of that way. It's just everywhere and it's probing and inquiring. And it also, you know, it inquired on the question of the origin of life, and the question of how to extend complex life into the cosmos from Earth, uh, from this great gift we've been given. Uh, and how recently to work on the climate change challenges that are coming. Uh, so all through my life, as well as a, a realming consciousness, I've had a trust in what you and I, I think sometimes called the field, or you know, Carl Jung called the synchronous field or synchronicity. And this started when I was nine. Uh, because I noticed that after a, a stimulating day or, or my father reading Lord of the Rings to us in, in bed, my brother and I, uh, I would close my eyes and there would be all these color flashes going on. And I'd open my eyes and know my brother wasn't shining a light in my, my face. And I realized there's some kind of internal color TV transmission going on. And we didn't have color TV, the neighbors did, but <laughs> so I, like a, like a dial, I started dialing the knob. I said, how do I get this, these color things to resolve into something like an old fashioned TV? And I literally learned how to pull my consciousness back into pure observer position. But I was like, I'm doing it right now. I'm just not even really here to allow whatever it was to come in, to flow in. And it did. And it never has never left. Uh, it, it did in the terms of the, the color flashes were sort of fractally and they resolved into landscapes and spaceships and beings and empires and internal worlds. It's very, very vivid. And I drew thousands of photos of these worlds when I was uh, a teenager. All right. 
and then there was a second event that happened. So I, I thought maybe this field thing, it can give you transmissions. So that was one. And I thought, well, that's a given that worked. And the second thing was when I was turning 10. When I was turning 10, I was walking out in the, by the river in our, my hometown in Canada. I thought, this is important. I'm going to go from one number on the odometer to two rolling. And this will happen again when I'm 99 to 100. And I thought, what do I do? And I thought, I, I get it. I will open a portal through into the future to all my future selves and just say hi. You know? And it worked. This, this kind of thing opened up and I could see the outlines of my future selves. And I thought, wow, they're all here. They're all assembled and they're doing cool things, which is cool. So I was hoping I would do cool things in science or something. And I decided, what do I do now that I have their attention through time? What can I do to help my future path? And I came up with simply writing on my hand a contract, uh, a legal agreement, literally a binding agreement that I would send out into all the future selves and that they would agree to. Because I thought that, that could be useful. What should the agreement be? And then I thought, that the future self should never send bad thoughts back down to the past <laughs> little self because the self did as good a job as it could do at the time. And then I just don't can't use all that stuff coming down through the, the portal. And they they picked up that contract and they all signed it. And suddenly there was this whooshing kind of feeling where everything just opened up, all possibility. And I know you talk about possibility and probability a lot just went forward. So there was never, there wasn't a back channel of junk. It was all possibility opening. So that was item number two of that you can manipulate synchronicities um, through positivity and intention. Um, the third one, and then I'll, I'll stop telling the story. Third one is when I was about 11, I started to get into a state of more mental states and so for instance, I had a, a pocket watch or baseball or something that I had to return to another boy that I didn't know. And I left the house and tried to find the boy, like in a state of worry, like, oh dear, gotta return this ball, you know, gotta find this kid or who knows what will happen, you know, that, you know, you just kind of get into an, a state where you make up a lot of bad scenarios. And I could never find the kid. So, I said, there's got to be another way to make this happen that isn't mental and isn't worry-based. So I went back to the house and I, I cleared my system, completely blew out that, that methodology and said, I'm going to go on intuition alone. I'm going to connect with this thing that seems to be delivering and see if it can get me to the boy. So I walked out and it moved me all over the place, you know, down back alleys, over to the slough, over... So I said, what are you doing? You know, I'm having all these adventures and I'm being shown things. And then suddenly after like two hours of this, I find myself in the schoolyard and there's the boy in the distance who does, I don't even see. He, there's a boy waving. He sees me. And he comes up to me and I hold out the baseball and he has a huge grin on his face and we become best friends. And I said, you know what, this synchronous field, this plan B, instead of a plan A, a plan B, really know is smarter than me. And I can really rely on it if I just go into that state and just say, just run me like I'm a 
sock puppet or string puppet or something. And so those were the three events where I established uh, this, how to interact with this field and its fundamental properties and what it could do. So, um, so Bruce, how, so one of the, one of the things I, I really love about my conversations with you is that, you know, I'm, as a philosopher, I'm wrestling with how we can bring science and spirituality together, but you're a real scientist. You're actually a scientist. I mean, I'm just like tr playing on the edge, trying my best to understand what you guys are actually up to and bringing my philosophy to it. So what really intrigues me about hearing your stories like that, and then hearing you talk as maybe we'll get a chance to later about your work on the origins of life and all of that, is that in you, they sit together. How do they sit together for you? How, how, how have you been able to, how do you see, you're describing as the field, it's a great word for it, I, I've called it that. I, I think of it as, a, a, as the soul dimension, you know, the bardo, you can call it a million things. And we're in it now. There's a non-material level to reality. We are always in it. And it's where we're sharing these ideas. And if you go off in it, with meditation or psychedelics or those sort of experiences you're having synchronicities there's a whole narrative world which is very very obvious to me and it i know it's very obvious to you and you've just made that clear in the stories you've told how does that fit for you when you're looking at biology computer science stuff which is embedded in an empirical exploration well, in, in some sense, because I assumed that the field had answers, but it had to sort of work through us, I would always present these problems to this general field. Like, hey, what do you think about this model? Or, And I would get stuff that would come back. It's like, oh, thank you very much. You know, I get exactly what I do, Bruce. That's incredible. Yeah. That's exactly the, the same. So you're yeah. actually doing science in relationship to it. Yeah, and I... I guess I didn't know any other way. And when I was 14, uh, I was uh, I actually made a commitment to my life's work, which was the mystery of how life began on the earth through so the self-assembly and somehow a system to drive you polymers. Fixed, you, you fixed that at 14. Yeah. So I was I was walking out in the sagebrush hills near my town of Kamloops, British Columbia, and. I noticed a mariposa lily coming up, and it was very beautiful. And it was my favorite flower. It's the frozen spring of Canada. And I had this studying it as this insight of, well, this is a complex structure that has emerged from a simple thing, which was a bulb. And that, that seems to be a general principle. Yeah. And then my, my realmy mind that we described earlier went back searching for that there must be a common bulb or seed behind all these forms of plants, that they must merge somewhere. And then I recalled that Albert Einstein, I've read a, I don't know, a bi little biography on Albert Einstein that used to do these things he called thought experiments or Gedanken experiments. And he was a crazy guy, rode his bike like a madman and things like this. But he, uh, at age 16, he describes going into a dream state where he was running alongside a beam of light and this looking at the compression. He had other ones too, but this is his famous one. And so I thought, well, that's how science is done. You know, you just, you get a download, 
<laughs> and it's bigger than your cognitive structure can put together. And then you work on the insights from the download. And as I was walking up back to the house, uh, I had just committed to, for a nerd kid, the origin of life is the key and most interesting problem. And I'll work on it for 90 years, I thought. Maybe I'll live to 104. I'll just commit 90, my whole life. I'll just, that's a large block of time. And because I, you know, that, that was just the most cool problem. And suddenly as I was going up toward the house, this ball of stick and ball molecules appeared in, just in front of me. And I didn't know what a third eye was or anything. It was just it's very, very strong. And I said, oh, hello, <laughs> you know, you must be a thought experiment. Okay, let's now engage, you know, push the engage button. And I was just about to ask, and I was studying how the molecules were moving. Like, can I get a clue by which there seems to be something that isn't random in the movement of these molecules? Like I was trying to already discern structure and form. I didn't know what algorithms were. There were no computers in our town or anything. And then suddenly it asked me the question. It said, figure out how I made a copy of myself. And then my 14-year-old brain said, let me think about that. You are a machine, clearly. And machines need bigger machines to make copies of them. So a TR7, our neighbors had a TR7, terrible British sports car, but it looked good. Uh, and it was clearly made in a factory, maybe not a very well-run factory, because this was always breaking. Uh, there was a larger that made this TR7. And I said, well, that's not a plausible question because I, I just see you there. I don't see a bigger machine that made you and it, you can't just have sort of made yourself. And it basically looked back at me and said, work on it, you know, and kind of winked if a bundle of molecules coming, just work on it. <laughs> There's an answer, you know, and it took, I don't know, 38 years and it came after many decades of inquiry, organizing conferences with Richard Dawkins and doing computer science and writing artificial life programs and organizing conferences and people and thinking and the downloads of this started happening in the 2000s. Huh. And the, the key one was uh, December 30th, 2013. It was like a massive download that occurred after breath work and yoga when I was trying to visualize an experimental apparatus we would build that would have a rocker plate that would create a hot spring cycling system in a, in a sealed chamber where we could study the chemistry at the boundary between mineral air and water as the system dried down because we'd worked out you could make polymers that way in between the slurry of uh, lipid bi uh, bilayers. This was working chemically with uh, Dave Deemer, my colleague at UC Santa Cruz. And I was saying, like, how do we make a thing which is like a hot spring that will simulate all the cycles? And then suddenly the download came. And instead of just seeing that apparatus, I became the protocells. I became the cycling polymers. And I saw how they coupled between wet, dry, and moist phases. And they were just continually transferred between lipid vesicles layers and gels and then the, it was intense the whole thing rolled through which was all of the polymeric evolution all the steps from stabilization to pores to metabolism and i saw all these complex systems 
all the way driving toward the division of protocells into living daughter cells. And then it came backwards and I worked backwards seeing all the steps. It was really intense. It was like a storm, like a, um, and then the, this dispersal of colonies of these protocells and they're cross-sharing across the landscape. And I, I ran upstairs and wrote and did sketches like I usually do from these things and wrote 10 pages of notes to Dave. And he wrote back that you found it, you found the kinetic trap. And that was the Eureka moment. Uh, and, but the answer to the bundle of molecules was that little machines in a network connected process with memory and probability shaping, which is what vesicles do, can yield and build bigger complex machines, can emerge. And that in summary, we'd answered the bundles question, but we'd found the general heuristic or the general formalism between all of life lifting off the background of the cosmos which include everything, includes all of human culture, includes spiritual experience. Everything would be generated by this engine of this PIM thingamajig. And what we're doing right now is, is an expression of that. We're together crowded into a Zoom podcast. We're, we're crowded close so that things that are improbable can happen. We're communicating and then we're writing a memory. We're recording this podcast and remembering things in our heads. And that's PIM, probability shaping interconnection memory, that cycle going, 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 going. So what I'm looking at now is, I was just at the IONS conference. Go, uh, hang, on, hang on a second, Bruce, go back, go back a second. Go back, because you've talked to me about this, but um, you know, obviously other people other than me is gonna listen to this. Um, God, there's so much, you've said so much. <laughs> there's so much I wanna pick you off on. But let's just go back to your triangle. So define what those three things are and why they're important to you, because it's a wider thing than just than just the origins of life. <laughs> it's 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 a bigger thing that you're looking at, right? Which is to do with creativity, really, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So I was asking the question for the last twenty five years: What is the difference between just the cosmos, just the physics of the cosmos, and what yep. it does, versus the uh, the living world? What is the difference yeah. uh, between those two? And um, what came out for me was uh, that the physics of the cosmos is very unproductive. Mm -hmm. So if you look back 10 billion years ago, and you can, you can look back to this early phase, you find the same star systems, fewer metals, uh, same galaxies, things like this. Uh, you, you find that. So the universe as a whole doesn't complexify very easily. Uh, it's, it's, it's really gets a D in terms of generating complexity and creativity that the physics does. It just only could go so far. But when you had the ability to crowd polymers into a membranous vesicle, which is, we call it cells today, forcing them together where they can still go in and out, the stuff can go in and out. This is why it's, uh, membranes are so important. It creates like a miraculous increase in probability of interactions. And physics alone can't say that, do that. Say that sentence again. It creates the almost miraculous increase in in likelihood of improbable things happening. Improbable things happening. So, so in, in effect, your hot your hot housing creativity is that what you're saying? Or yeah, yeah. but it's the, only the first step. So crowding is a general principle, and the cosmos isn't very good at doing that. But membranous 
vesicles are good at doing that. So, and it's just so an accident. When, of, when you say the, the, the universe isn't very good at crowding, I mean, obviously, it's, there's bits of it that are very crowded with stuff. So is it the containment, the crowded within the, a containment that's the key? Yeah, within an encapsulation that permits stuff to go in and out. In and out. So is it the membrane, which is the key there? That's, that's the membrane is the membrane is key, and in some sense, God invented membranous materials like amphiphiles, and then just called it a day because after that, that's all you needed. Perhaps. So, 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 so that by having, by having the container within which you could turn up the possibility for improbable things to happen, you get that explosion of creativity that was taking much, much, much longer in yeah. the 10 billion years before that. Yeah, no, because biology is different than geology. Geology has somewhat of a container too, but it tends to grow hard crystals that run out of steam and, and can't grow anymore. Because biology chose a soft liquid crystal to organize itself, which is lipids, it gets, the, it gets three more properties that geology and physics just don't do. I mean, let's face it, this is all physics, but the, it gets the creation of, of vesicles, the crowd. Then when those vesicles are themselves crowded together into an aggregate as a sludge, it looks like bathtub soap at the bottom of your bathtub, a network effect can start up in that aggregate. And so a little reaction, one little bubble over here creates products which diffuse to another one over here, which talks to another one over here. And network effects, which humanity has just rediscovered, you know, as a science since telegraphy, you know, and the internet and whatnot, are super powerful. They can work against the laws, the second law of thermodynamics. They right. can the network effects, item number two, interconnection. Right. Uh, and this in way is a simple chemical interconnection. And it, this is actually from another downloaded vision that came to me one night. It showed me the P and the I. And it did a Descartesian thing of throwing a grid over everything. Because it's trying to teach me the fundamental properties of the thing that made us. That was the vision that came one night about three years ago. So the P is there doing all its crowding and it's making stuff. The I comes when all these little protocells are smooshed together into this aggregate, which we believe is the origin of life unit, which is called the progenome. And then, and only then, on top of that system, which is cycling through many stages, can you get a memory emerge. So a real linear memory system, a real system where polymers, which are the memory system of life, can, can spontaneously emerge. What does, what does that mean for you in that context, memory? Um, that's so, of interest to me. Uh, some of the physicists on campus came to us uh, about four years ago and said, We've been looking for linear memory in quantum dynamics or any physics-based system, and we've never found it. I. What, does that, what does that? What does that mean? What does that mean? So, we mean a linear memory. What does that? Can you unpack that, Bruce? So a linear memory is like a string of characters in a book. Yep. Or or a string of polymers in DNA that codes yep. instruction that you can write and read and produce a blueprint for the next generation of thought or the next generation of an organism. Right. The, the linear creation of storage and then it's reading to guide future complexity is just not found anywhere in, at any level in pure physics. It's only found in 
in biology as far as they've ever been able to determine. So we actually took them into the lab, these physicists, and had them look down the barrel of a microscope at, at self-assembling uh, vesicles that had polymers that we stained inside the vesicles. And, and we said, those didn't exist three hours ago. Those self-assembled through wet-dry cycling, and we just stained these vesicles, you'd call them in the UK, and they're glowing because we have DNA in there and we have RNA that are long chains instead of individual building blocks. So yes, physics, physics can self-assemble linear uh, polymers or linear memory structures, but it's at the boundary between where physics leaves off and life takes off. And so they were quite interested and now we've joined a, an international effort to look at information in physics. I mean, linear information, not just sort of state changing information, which seems to be the only thing that they've been able to find, uh, even at the quantum level. So one of the things, you know, which I've been exploring a lot, and uh, I'm obviously coming at this from a purely philosophical place, um, um, but is, is the presence of the past, as Rupert Sheldrake puts it. How, um, how does that idea sit with what you're saying? Because one of the things, I mean, for me, I'm a, I'm a phenomenologist, really, I guess, that's my, my, my well, uh, your, your story was so funny because what I wanted to say when you said, was that what happened to me was very slightly younger probably, but my big moment when I was 12 was exactly the same. I was just, just absolutely sure that my life would be dedicated to discovering God and understanding the mystery of existence. And that was it. And my experience in my 50s of writing Soul Story and finishing it, my, my latest book, was, was what you described had happened to you. It was that same, oh my God, I've, I've, actually, I've actually had a good stab at what I knew I had to do all these decades later. That little boy who'd gone, you're going to do this, would actually, you know, had, in a sense, had, had that, I'd followed it through. That message from that young kid had reached me and I'd, I'd acted on it. So one of the things that's in there, the idea which relates to what you're saying, I think, and that's why I picked you up on the memory thing, is this observation that when I look at the moment, it, it has a creativity to it. It's always fresh. It's always new. It's nothing, nothing repeats. Well, it repeats relatively, but every moment is a new realization. And yet every single moment contains within it everything that's happened before. And it seems such an obvious observation. And it makes me want to say, look, the past hasn't gone anywhere. It's implicit. So if you look, so that's why the, the ideas of people like um, um, Charles um, uh, Pierce, Pierce, mm -hmm. um, Pierce. Um, about the idea of the habits of nature on the laws of nature and all that sort of thing really, really speak to me. And I wondered, how does that fit with this, with memory because it, there's a sense my intuition is everything is is everything is constantly in relationship to everything that's already come into form that's the intuition i'm exploring yes i think that there is this field and i use the term field because it's it both appeals to science and reductionist thinking because we always talk about fields but it also appeals to more spiritual experiential things uh, but it doesn't attach to uh, notions of, of an embodied God and things like this or so it's sort of a very nice loose etheric term <laughs> so perhaps 
So in my moment to moment moment interactions with it, I'm constantly dumping stuff into the field. Like I'm dumping discoveries, questions, et cetera, et cetera. Yep. And I, I, there's a cer certain server call time. So if I make a request to it, a strong imagination, I call it an imagination explosion where I'll visualize the best possible outcome. And then it's I'll the wait. It's the same. Well, How long do you have to, has it, has it been getting quicker? Mine's getting quicker. It used to be sometimes, it's, it's, sometimes it'd be years. Very, now it's yeah. usually a few days, if that. Well, I think yeah, absolutely. And in, in fact, um, I can tell you another story of, of interaction with the field that might, um, where I got basically given a demonstration by it. So uh, I, about two years ago, I was walking up on the paths above Silicon Valley on Skyline Boulevard, which you've probably been up there. It's such beautiful oak forests and redwoods and whatnot. And I, I left my phone in the car you know, the phone is the great PIM cycling new network that's making everything more dense, you know. Yeah. I left the phone in the car to not be distracted. And I walked and I said, I'm just going to drop the veil. The veil of the fact that uh, we humans believe we're sort of just running around doing our things of our volition. And I'm going to drop the veil and I'm going I'm to talk to the field and say, I recognize you. And I want to thank you for all that you have done all these years and that you have guided me and I will continue to be your faithful follower. I will continue all those little marbles that you roll into the valleys of probability that I pick up faithfully and you open these wondrous vistas, you know, on, on these improbable challenges like you took on and like I've taken on. And suddenly, uh, halfway up the mountain this kind of square light pattern opens kind of like just behind me here this window just like kind of shimmering and it basically was uh, a whatever was looking at me taking a look you know checking me out I said to it I see you I know what you're doing and it there was there was no voice or anything it was just a strong, powerful observation, powerful recognition. And then it kind of blipped out of existence. And then after that, I, I get into the states that I was like when I was 11, super completely tied into what is going on. Every bird song, everything, where everything is now the choreography, everything's super synchronous. And I'm walking along and super alive. And I'm like in that flow state, you know, uh, some of our friends call this flow state. Uh, and then I get up to the top of the mountain and I look over and there's the Wallace Stegner bench, which is named after a poet at Stanford. And I walk over to it. I'm still being string puppeted by the field. And I sit in the center of the bench and, and it just sort of picks me up and shifts me to the right side, but right tight to the handrail, to the railing of the side of the bench. Okay, well, that's, yeah. And three minutes later, I sense behind me some people are walking up, they pause and then they walk over and they ask, can we sit here? And there were two women and a man, older people, said, sure, you can sit here. And they wouldn't have come over if I'd been in the center of the uh, bench. So this is like the field doing its little thing as usual. And then they said, can we have our lunch? And I said, of course you can have your lunch, you know. So it was a warm kind of funny introduction and they we started talking about what we're doing and I realized that these are Stanford super smart people don't know who they are 
And I mentioned I was working on the origin of life and we're about to have a big publication or something. And I, I said, you know, two weeks ago, I was in front of a group of postdocs talking about this work, suggesting to them that there would be at least a half a dozen Nobel prizes to be earned through this work to get their attention, mm -hmm. uh, to take this seriously. And I said to them, I'd like to be the white haired, crazy old professor or scientist in the back of the room when you're getting your Nobel Prize. And the older man that was there looked up at me and said, that's what I'm doing next week. <laughs> I'm going to Stockholm with his wife oh. and we're sitting, I'm in the back of the room to see my student get the Nobel Prize in economics. Wonderful. The second time, there's a second student, a graduate student getting the Nobel Prize in economics. And I became best friends with them and went to their house for two years at Christmas, met all the other novellists. But on the way down, walking down the mountain, I kind of turned to the field and I get, I said, that was a very impressive demo of, of your power. Very impressive because the probability of bringing those two things together in that way, the one human that I could meet that was doing the thing that I had the vision that I would be doing in 30 years or something. Boom. Like what a demo you rock. And so that's a, a, an example. And, and I agree with you. This is getting faster and faster and faster. So, as, as, you know, so the thing obviously that I'm exploring here <clears throat> and which first brought us together when we first met, at, we first met actually in at the psychedelic festival for the eclipse where we were both speaking, didn't we? I remember, I remember taking a photo of you where um, I think I told you this when you came to my 60th birthday, because I'd been told, oh, you know, you were here and you were obviously someone that everyone was excited to, to, to listen to. I, I didn't have an, any clue who you were at all, I'm afraid to say. Um, but uh, I knew you, you know, you were doing some very interesting, you're, you're, you just had the cover, hadn't you? You just had the cover, you got it there? Yeah. Just been on the cover of Scientific American. That was pretty impressive. Yeah. It's like, man, this guy's on the cover yeah. of Scientific American. So I'm going to yeah, meet. We knocked, we knocked the eclipse off the cover. That's pretty, pretty <laughs> impressive. So I was going to meet a biologist on the cover of Scientific American this month, and uh, and turned up. My daughter was studying biology at the time, and uh, yeah, turned up. <laughs> you arrived wearing this magnificent headdress, and I remember taking a photo and saying, "I just have to send this to my daughter because it's important she knows what a top biologist looks like now." Because <laughs> it was like, okay, right. So, so we brought together then, and the thing which I was exploring then, and was the, the the hypothesis the the, the thing that I, is is that we can bring together all of that stuff your experience of the field all of those spiritual experiences whatever we call them that going off to the imagination psychedelics life after death meaning the narrative function of life the way that life can become dreamlike all of that we can bring together into one evolutionary narrative if we extend the narrative just like just like uh, from from the original sort of with ideas with Darwin and Wallace of oh life has evolved and then oh my god the whole universe has evolved there's a whole period a different period of evolution that we can go look there's a third period of evolution which is actually the evolution of the field in effect the or it's the evolution of the the the, the imagine, imagination aspect of it the place where we can where you're having those interactions where it, it it feels like if that could be articulated 
suddenly the, the experiences you're having and then the scientific world you move in would, would, what, if it would become a mainstream thing. It's possible to create a one narrative. Um, I think so, yeah. You think so? <laughs> I'm, I th it just feels like that's the, this simple idea that through, that for 13.8 uh, billion years, there's been the realization of new potentials, each building on what came before. And, th and that well, what you're looking at is that key juncture where it suddenly yeah. and then the next key juncture is going to be sentience and consciousness and imagination. And About uh, six months ago, I had a, probably the most powerful experience of my life, actually, one of these delivered visions. And I sketched it out uh, for some people about three, uh, 30 days ago, and we're actually going to animate it. But it actually was a single a single way and a single visual to see this whole system from cosmogenesis through biogenesis all the way up to conscious genesis and this field growing thing it was yeah. one sculpture, one living sculpture Beautiful. that came to me one night. And I, I, I will actually send it to you, the oh. sketch of, uh, you can, you can put it on, on your site because we're going to develop it. Great. But it, it was really remarkable because it, it showed the unification of all the concepts and, and the experience or experiences generated. And um, if you'd like a brief overview of it. Yeah, give me, give me, a, yeah, I'd love that. So I was sitting there and it was dusk on the Pacific. We were at uh, Moss Beach, you know, looking out over this fantastic sunset. And then suddenly, <clears throat> because the sunset, you have this great, glassine plane of the ocean and then you have this glowing thing going down and I realized wait a minute that glowing thing that is now going down is the master cycler that so, so that again, Bruce, it's the it's the, <clears throat> that glowing thing that's setting over the ocean is the master cycler huh. that the the fact that the earth rotates into the uh, this fantastic radiation from the sun it's the it's the super cycler. It's the thing that has that only brought a life into being. But every morning that that happens, this pulse of energy is running the entire system. And so, if you think of of early life as being microbial slimes, you know microbial communities. It's a flat base. And this this is when the vision came that microbial community is this broad base. It's this you know, plinth on, on the fundament of life. And that the cycling of the, of the sun, the rotation of the earth into the sun is running a, a cycling system with this PIM thing. Probability is being shaped. Interactions are more networks are being built. Uh, more memories being written in the in case of polymers in that case. And then more unlikely things are being birthed. But slowly as the sun is stacking and stacking and stacking and cycling all those systems and then this this like it was like a silver spire growing off of the plane and it went up and it started to decohere a bit and then i looked in and it was this massive flow of things into complexity the fungi first at a billion years ago and then bigger and bigger organisms eukaryotes and then the organisms were appearing in this spire and they were already three billion years off of the background. And the, the, the fact that they're standing on a spire is indicating that they're on a potential gradient, that 
they're improbable in the history of the cosmos. They can only be made by this stacking process yeah. of energy pumping yeah. into the system, yeah. growing and growing and growing. And the, the difference between these objects here and there is a potential gradient. It's like in, in gravity, when you have a ball at the top of a round, it has potential energy that can roll down the round. This is the same thing, but it's a probabilistic field that is stacked. <clears throat> And then what, what I noticed is that the, the blobs were getting more and more complex and moving faster and faster. And in between the blobs was this, this sheen of a network effect was going on. And I realized the network is getting denser at the same time. And then to the side of the stack were these blocks. And I realized that the blocks represent accumulated memory. Yeah. And so by the time you get to humans after four over four billion years, the system is massive and it's much, much bigger than, than human consciousness. It's just a massive outgrowth of this stacking and creates this field of interconnections is so large that we can't track, we can barely tap into it. You know, we're getting better at it. And a memory system that is densely ramified. And on the, on the face of it, the one thing that life is good at is shaping probability, which is a very powerful feature. And this phone that we're on right now is a highly improbable thing in the cosmos as an object. It could only have been made by four billion years of stacking and, and strangulation events where the system is almost killed off and suddenly you get a, a smartphone popping out the top. And I realized this is it. This is the, this is one vision of this entire thing. And at the top of that was this explosion that outward and that was conscious awareness of it. So your experience at 12 and many people's experiences, when conscious awareness of the miraculous, of, of the understanding of how the cycling worked, what its building blocks were, uh, life itself and the history all the way back to the origins and the unlikelihood, the wonderment of the unlikelihood of it, you come into a flash of complete awakening but it's an awakening that's very different than a spiritual awakening. It's awakening to all, all of science, maybe, you know, all of, all of the wonder and awe of our existence. And it forms almost like this flow that goes all the way back, like where I, I live in the progenian. I mean, I lived 4 billion years ago, rooting for the little guys, little tykes to make it. And I went to look for them for goodness sakes and found them. And in, as you said with Brian Swim uh, the other week, where life is starting and failing and starting and failing and it's trillions. You know, that's the, the delicate early phase of the progenote world. And so by my awareness traveling into that world, rooting for the little tykes, I'm creating a kind of total union of the entire thing, or at least I'm in my own version of a, of a union and it becomes the greatest awakening, blurry, uh, complete um, whatever you call it moment for a geeky little kid like me to realize I've just found them and I've just I'm now in connection with the totality of, of this and what is in the moment now but also through four billion years of past evolution this is so close Bruce I mean you you you, you, you articulate it differently for sure but what you're exploring as I understand it is so close to 
my own vision and what I'm trying to articulate. It's the same thing. I mean, I, I, when I talk about the accumulation of the past, I think it's very close to what you're talking about as the, the, the memory part. What you're talking about is prob probability. It's what I talk about as the possible. And the, 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 and the, the cycling thing is really interesting because when you were saying that, it felt like just today I was meditating when I was philosophy walking and I was meditating on the way that creativity works so much through failed repetition, that repetition, everything's based on repetition and yet repetition fails. And that leads to this constant novelty. And, 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 and there's this kind of, that's a, that's something cyclic repetition, you know, it's literally it's a cycle isn't it? and things go around. And, and, and that also that, that feeling that you, you brought up with the early life, the container, and that feels like what you described with the field is what is creating that container in a way that you focus in on the question or the thing and you hold it tight. That's where the, that's where something new comes out through it, not just being anything by actually off. And the, the, the focus that you'd had when you were a kid and gone, that's where, I need to focus on the same with me had actually created the journey which we'd made. So it feels like, although our conversation has covered a whole load of different ground, there's something exactly the same in every single bit of it. And, and I, I think that one of the things that I like to bring to the meetings, I was just at IONS and I may be at the science and non-duality meeting in CIIS actually where Brian and I are doing a, a day long program in October. Oh, great. Um, yeah, no, it's wonderful. We're establishing a, a, a creative collaboration now. Oh, fantastic. Uh, is that when humanity, uh, so for generations, humanity has kind of taken this field, all these, sometimes people call them miracles or they have prayer, the prayer to miracle thing. When they've taken that and they put it in another place, they put it in the clouds of the fellow with a beard, they put it out into the cosmos saying that, well, the cosmos is conscious and everything. I think of that as a kind of dissociation in that we're always trying to create another God, another abstracted God or another story that's outside of the here and now. Whereas perhaps this new story, and this is what you know Brian's been after for decades, the new story is it's about life, life itself. Life itself is sufficiently complex. And as we as we really study life and its history, life is powerful enough to create everything that we're in. And by dissociating and saying, oh no, atoms are conscious and all these kind of the, the panpsychist ideas in a sense, we're actually, it's a denial of life itself. We're taking our eye off the ball that no, it's moment by moment, it's that bird in the distance, it's that, that sound, it's that smell, everything is in this fantastic choreography, the here and now. We don't have to cast it out there. It is what is. And, and this comes you back mean, to your, your fundamental precept. So, so do you, do, you mean, do you mean it in that way that, 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 well, the image that comes to mind always for me is, well, it, it's kind of like the natural metaphor. I mean, I love it that the, the, the whole Big Bang idea originally, you know, it was the cosmic egg and, and that idea of, of I was an egg. And then mm -hmm. I went through a whole long period where I was pretty you know, much, you know, just doing very splitting up and nothing much happening. Well, lots and lots are happening, but no consciousness or anything like that. But then from that was going to come 
a complex body, was going to come sentience, and was eventually going to come me sitting with Bruce having a conversation about the meaning of life. And all of that was started with the very most, the least emergent phenomena and would and it, it it just you look at the the history of the universe and it's hard not to go well it's followed exactly the same trajectory it is i'm i mimic the way the whole universe has arisen from 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 matter into life into soul into psyche and well, that it's flowering into this very thing so that the thing we're disassociated with is actually the thing we're becoming we are it. We are the thing which is going to bring it into existence. Well, here's a couple of wonderful stories that might, I think stories, I agree with you, stories are the place, the hooks we can hang our understanding on in, in this kind of a realm. Um, I just was the opening speaker for a conference called IONS, which was um, Institute of Noetic Sciences. And what I did was to bring the IONS founder back into the room. And this was Edgar's, Edgar Mitchell the mm. Apollo 14 astronaut, because this was held, this event was held on the anniversary of Apollo 11. It was 700 people, it was a beautiful event. So I ran the video of Edgar, which shows Edgar in the Apollo 14 capsule coming back to Earth and had this wonderful grin on his face, kind of like yours right now. And what had happened to Edgar uh, is the perfect embodiment of all of this work. He had just landed, he was the lunar module commander. He had landed on the moon. When he'd been on the moon, he had sensed very little. He said, this place is, is so alien because it's so dead. I just can't feel a thing. And this is a, a common thing for astronauts. And I think when we go to Mars, we'll, we'll sense the deadness because you're outside of the biosphere and you're just disconnected. And it, it kind of freaked them out a little bit. But as he was coming back, they were rotating the, the capsule to keep the sun from baking the side one side too much and he would see the earth and moon pass through the window because he had time off he that's a key thing with awakening experience have time off <laughs> he was done and then as the window rotated away it would rotate into a field of stars which is so vivid because you don't have any light pollution or atmosphere wow. and at one moment he realized that all of the atoms of his body and the body of his partners in the mission and the vehicle itself were made in previous generations of those stars, mm -hmm. in the furnaces of those stars. So very sciencey understanding. But what it did for Edgar is it opened up this feeling of oneness with the universe, that he was made by the universe and he was one with it. And he didn't know what, it was tremendous to him, this incredible joy that came in. And after he got back to Houston, he called a friend up at Rice University, which is full of odd characters. And, and the person who was a professor, I guess, of uh, Eastern Studies, this is 1971, uh, said, well, you had what was called a Samadhi experience. Uh, and so then Edgar founded IONS to study all this. So that is an example of yeah. this yeah. beautiful union between yeah. the two worlds so that he could be a dialed-in gearhead, but through the knowledge of actual seeing, of actual presence, rather than projecting the story into religious belief or mythology, he could come into a complete union. So he became, at that moment, one of the humans that had unified the two things in a beautiful way. And so that, that was it. 
And there was a second story I was going to tell you, but I can't remember what it was. Oh, oh, that, that in fact, uh, when we were at the Eclipse Festival, so the unlikelihood of us, which is another way to have a Samadhi experience. So we're sitting on the dam over the Eclipse stage, which is the main big stage for the festival. And the Eclipse was happening and this 900 mile an hour, you know, penumbra or the, the shadow had come ripping across and there it was, a perfect eclipse. And everyone's screaming and shouting. We are using our special binoculars to see the perfect ring and to see the little jewels of where, you know, the sunlight's coming through valleys on the moon, actually. And my friend Michael said, why is it that we have a perfect solar eclipse, that if we had evolved 10 million years later, the moon would be further out and there'd be a big ring. You'd never see a totality. And it came to me, oh my God, it's the perfection itself. I know. That, so um, a vision that I had had about five years ago when I asked the big field, actually the big field basically told me to lie down and it said, I'm going to show you something. And I didn't even ask anything. I was like, what? You know, and, and it said, lie down, I'm showing you something. And it showed me the cosmogenesis, this little exploding thing. Let's go back to what? A, a fairly simplicity, but massive amount of potential in it. And then it showed me these bit buckets, those little pails, like paint pails, coming out from it, all the way to my line of sight. And it said, study these. And it had probabilities on each bit bucket, the P1, P2, and P3. And it said, what do you think is the probability of the universe going from its simple state to a more complex state? I said, I don't know. I said, well, it could be low probability, medium, or high. It could be like vanishingly low or, or high. And I said, I don't know, medium. I said, wrong, low probability. And then it, it kept doing this. And the P1 was the low one. And then the P3 was the super, like impossible low probability all the way up to my vision from the cosmogenesis, which I realized wasn't a cosmogenesis, it was a probability genesis. And then it said, get ready. And it showed me a single through line going through the lowest probability actions at every point, not the high ones. Cause I thought, well, you know, you gotta have high probability in order for things to happen. It said, no, watch. And this, this flowering came out of lines going through the low probability points, adding them up to make them even lower, you know, because you've had low probability to another low, it's even lower, you know, it's even less likely. And it was like, it blew my so system you, apart. Are you, are, you, are you saying that you, the under, so you saying you think that it's, it's the least probable, not the most probable. That's, yeah. So then, that's then what this, this great cosmic teacher is kind of a teacher with a, uh, an attitude really said you are the creation of the exquisitely low probability events added up this is what you are why do you privilege the mundane that was the words why do you privilege the mundane and this is my power that i can make this happen and through the lowest probably always look at the lowest probability events happening so no. so how does that how, how does that fit then with for you with with well i mean the mere fact that it's it's highly 
probable that the room will stay the same and it has throughout our conversation it's obviously the, our experience in in psyche is much more less probable i don't know where it's going to go but um isn't there something quite isn't 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 the mere fact that it took 10 billion years to get to life and the increasing the creativity you talked about isn't isn't doesn't that speak of things happening in in a more probabilistic way to begin with and it becoming more and more creative well yes and no in that with the study of exoplanets now we have kepler we have 2600 exoplanets we have got other missions on the way we're discovering the horrible truth the horrible truth is that rocky worlds around, if you're lucky, a stable star system and a stable solar system don't retain liquid water at their surfaces. You know, Mars didn't, Venus didn't, we mm -hmm. did. We're freakishly rare. And it may yeah. be because of this freakishly large moon, it's exactly the right size in the right place. And it's occurring to exoplanet people, and given that we have now have a, a model for the origin of life now that is actually testing, science hasn't had this in 150 years. Darwin, in his warm little pond uh, writing, uh, had it. He nailed it, actually, in 1871. We, we, we actually just forgotten about that. But that we have a model for how life can start now for the first time in, in human history. But what we're determining is that not only is it, is it Yes, the chemistry is fast and you can get protocells to form. We did it in hot spring pools in Rotorua last year in, in New Zealand. We did it with, with reagents that we brought. But getting to self-sustaining autotrophic cellular life is exquisitely hard. This is my prediction. And certainly getting to complex life is almost vanishingly impossible because of the planet dying from out from under the system because the oceans go away and, and your liquid water at the surface has gone like Mars and you have no path for even microbial life. Microbial life now is stuck, it's entrapped until the death of the, the planet. And so we're, we're kind of discovering how extraordinarily rare we are and that complex life that had the right mass extinction events from dinosaurs to trilobites to the right mass extinction to allow these crazy prosimians to come and then Africa splitting down the middle at the right time to create the savanna, to throw half of our, uh, our ancestors into the savanna and force us into accelerated evolution. And then all the 10 million other things that happened in just the right order so that we could be sitting here on a podcast talking about the matter, you know, it's, 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 it's so rare to be, it, to be one time almost that this is the one and unique and sole time. And it, it could be. Uh, and with this realization, I had a, another dialogue in 2013, earlier in the year, where I was actually, this is in my most profound experience of my life, was to become the first dividing protocell and undergo the, the ripping apart of my body, which is this gelatinous mass, and seeing the polymeric action as a as a observer watching it but the screen of of the birth and then the failed division of the protocell where the, the little capsule went off was dead and the mystery of how could a division occur that failed and that death indeed wrote the code of life but how mm. and then that led to 
the vision at the end of the year. But as I was leaving that incredible download, which I've rarely ever described, uh, I felt an intelligence because I was back 4.2 billion years ago. And I felt an intelligence that had given me that download, that, that vision. And I, I had a chance to ask it one more question that it seemed to me like when the protocell was doing its division thing, that there was some kind of an intelligence driving it, that there was some kind of a hand there. But, you know, I'm not necessarily a creationist at all. You know, I'm, I, I'm looking for, you know, gearhead explanations. I said, well, there, if there was no life before life arose on earth or wherever it arose, how could there be an intelligence? And I sat back on my haunches waiting. It was, it was a huge transmission, a server call to the field. And I said, I'm going to wait for an answer. It might just come. The, the field can get cranky, especially uh, when it's already delivered a massive thing and it's tired and sped up with you. Uh, so I sat back on my, my haunches and waited for anything that would be delivered to this key question of, was there something there before? And what came wasn't an answer. It was the, the total universe came at me. So thrown at my consciousness were star fields and globular clusters and galaxies that literally smashed into my consciousness and I knocked me over. It was just a, and, and the delivery that I got from that, it wasn't an explanation of God. It wasn't anything. It was this that did this. This grew yes. big enough. This grew large enough to make the probability and the creativity for you to be here. And that is the simple, the total, the total universe was big enough to carry this out. I love that, Bruce. And, and it always feels to me when I'm looking for the intelligence in physics, let alone biology, it feels like it is, it is what I'm calling the past. It's, the, it's everything that's happened is laying down what can happen next the potentiality is it can can only work with what's already happened and what's already happened creates these patterns the past the pastivity the the habits of nature the way things repeat we're doing it now i'm repeating these words which are in my past making these funny noises i have an english accent because of where i because where i was born you you have a different accent and everything is just everything is a new expression of the past everything is cycling and in that there's a the, the, realizing ever new possibilities and the intelligence is in all of that and so the intelligence which is running which is arising is going to arise in nature is like you said the whole the intelligence that's got to nature that's created all of that past and that potentiality which will give birth to you've got to show us the thing now i at my at my uh, uh 60th birthday which um bruce came to this is i'm now talking to the imaginary people who aren't in this room but are watching this in the future and um, uh, Bruce was deli delighted us at breakfast the next morning by producing. Oh, I'll let you let you take it. The, you know, the, these are the guys that you were talking about that you went into. Yeah. So, what I'm holding in my hand, I can, yeah, there yeah. it is. Yeah. Reasonably good view, I think. Yeah. Is uh, this is an imprint of a fossil, a fossilized life from three billion years ago. Uh, from Western Australia, from the, the Tumbiana Formation, here's sort of the back of it. It's a mudstone. So what you're actually seeing is that that gray patterning is mud from a lake shore uh, in the Archean period. 
<clears throat> on the other side, we're seeing these ripples. And the ripples are microbial mat community that sequester sediment grains, cemented them together and grew up on top of them, creating something called a stromatolite, which is a form of microbial mat that's the dominant form of life for 90% of, of the history on Earth. <clears throat> so to ground ourselves in all of this very, very wonderful etheric thinking, this is our common ancestor that we have found, that we can touch. This is what made our world. Uh, these little tykes. Oh, mummy. <laughs> mummy. And, and why it's important to, to uh, come into contact with this is we can kind of get dissociated. We can lose, we can sort of think of it all as a given and all as a, some magic cycling thing and some abstract thing. No, this uh, was the hard work that had to be done by yeah. uncountable generations of organisms to oxygenate the atmosphere, to, cl to clean the iron out of the system to then build souls, paleo souls, soils, to then support eukaryotes, to support fungi, then support the rise of plants on land and animals that were in the marine shore environment. This incredible march through this cycling system, which this was already, I'd say 1.1 billion years in, and, and the complexity was low. I mean, these microbial mapped communities in, in New Zealand today, and in Yellowstone, other places, you can go to exquisite hot spring environments and see these microbial mats doing the same thing. And they leave the same patterns in the rocks as the ones three and a half billion years ago in Australia left. Not really any net evolution there because they'd reached a stable plat plateau, but they were the heavy climate change movers that allowed the base, they were, they're the base of life and their entire base it's a consortia of collaborative units. And this is the big idea for philosophy and for spiritual thinking out of this work. And I'm glad we could bring this up in the show, which is that the common ancestor of all life was a community, yeah. not an individual in competition. Yeah. And Scientific American actually embodied this in the article very beautifully. They took my artwork showing uh, the cycling system and here's can see the sort of a uh, cycle through wet and dry and moist and sort of see that that's our wet dry moist pools little bathtub rings and stuff like that and there's a wedge that's coming out and the wedge uh, at the edge is the growing mass of protocells that get more complex as we cycle them and that's the progenote and that that's the unit at the roots of the tree of life and here's the the rest of the landscape and how the landscape, they call it the Genesis landscape in here. I think it's on this side. Yeah, there we are, the Genesis landscape. Um, I'm not sure if you can see it, but. So, I, I, almost. So the, the, the idea being that our common ancestor was a community in collaboration, not uh, red in tooth and claw and the survival of the fittest thing, which could, the survival of the fittest thing, this is Herbert Spencer's idea. Yeah, it's a could only, Yeah, it, it could only arise when you had grazers. Yeah. And grazers are worms all the way up to us that graze on the microbial map on the forest products of the forest floor and soils, which are in, exquisitely collaborative. So what we're doing now, and the reason I was in the UK, apart from going to your 60th birthday, was to present up at Cambridge uh, to this group called the Extended Evolutionary Synthesis, 
and to present for the first time a link between the origin of life and its subsequent evolution. That they're, they're not rethinking Darwin's ideas, they're extending them. And one of their ideas is that niche construction or the collaborative building of niches was an, a major factor in evolution. And it's also an informational medium, niche construction. And so what I was doing is showing the very first niche construction that could have been the assembly of these protocells in an aggregate mass, which would have protected the members and provided them chances to network, you know, get together um, and to build a memory. And so this is where it all just came together that mainstream, and this is becoming more mainstream, evolutionary biology now has found its start point. And when I when I showed this to Ken Wilbur, I know you you interviewed Ken Wilbur recently. Yeah, had a conversation. Denver, with when when I met with Ken in his flat for a couple hours, and yeah. he said, you know what's interesting about all this is that in the sort of spiral that's going through his holon system. This is the actual set point, the start of all of that, and that we can learn from that starting point. So people like yourself and, and Ken and uh, people like Matt Segal from CIS and, and others, uh, well, we're actually going to write a grant for Templeton to see if they fund some of this research and, and allow us to host a, a wonderful meeting at Esalen in two years, or we can sit down and talk about the matter. Because we may have found this start point, this PIM formalism, if it can be checked out by people, it may be like a new Copernican center. It may be like Copernicus's discovery that the universe was centered around the sun, which he would have lost his head and his funding if he published in his lifetime. But uh, Galileo got in trouble for it 70 years later. But that this, this generative engine that may underline underlie life but all all creative processes all emergent processes yeah that's that that would be my guess and because what what my guess would it be it goes right the way back and and that these fundamental things are actually like underlying structures of what reality is what existence is and then they express themselves through the emergence pro emergent process because what what was making me laugh it was bringing your world and my world together was you were describing the formation of the the you know the building blocks of what what was going to be life coming through community the hard work you talked about it and the you know the cycling and then the building of memory and i'm thinking i've just come from a individual's retreat and what i've been doing with people is creating an environment putting a membrane around us and in that we have been entering into profound soul communion where we're a community where we're one and two at the same time or one with one and many at the same time and going so deeply into that that something arises from it which is greater than all of us which i think is actually the field it's god whatever name you give to it the thing which arises when souls commune in that very deep way this more emergent thing and and the way that it can the way that it's happening it feels to me is through the building up of the past of, of memory the part you know the more you do it the more you can enter into it the more accessible it becomes and the more we do it together and it feels like what we're doing now as human beings is at the next level of exactly the thing you're looking at at this incredibly ancient mm -hmm. proto level which is giving birth to the next thing and the next thing is something beyond us. 
of which we are parts and and we have to struggle and cycle and and you know it's an old spiritual idea but it's one i'm open to for, for various reasons but it feels like the cycle we're going through is the cycle of of life and death life and death life and death that's the cycle that's the the old idea in spirituality the evolution of the soul through moving through this cycle and that in the process of doing that it's refined enough to give birth to something greater than itself which you can call anything but we experience think, this incredible love alan watts called it the kali yuga you know and and what's interesting is i've as i'm now taking on a climate change a global climate change initiative called climate mitigation uh, we're just forming an, an initial network of people to help us bridge over the coming challenges because we need to start building infrastructure everywhere and doing studies in the next 10 years so that's the new network we're standing up and basically it was like in, in a sense another conversation with the field saying what are the scenarios and the one scenario was that came back was enclaves city states where you have high quality of life food security financial transportation still have air traffic going on but there's just a complete uh, refugee uh, destructive zone in between you know this is hollywood's blade runner 2049 and all that hollywood's good at depicting that and then there was i said well what are some of the other scenarios and the other one is Yes, Go going, anything, better, anything better than that, please. <laughs> well, that's, what I, that's why I moved to the Bay Area cause in 94, because I thought it would make a good enclave. Right. It's rich people and everything. It could get closed off and all that. But that's kind of an unpleasant, it's an mm. unsatisfactory, because we lose science. We'll probably lose space travel. We'll lose a lot of science. We'll lose a lot because it'll all be defended. Uh, and there will be shortages um, because we just need the whole of humanity to support the whole of humanity. And spiritual practice will go out the window, you know, in, in that scenario. There were worse scenarios, which is complete, you know, other Hollywood car chase type thing. Mm. Uh, but then I started seeing other scenarios coming when I was doing that communication with the future. What I was doing when I was nine, and I was like, show me, show me images, show me stuff in 2050 and 2060. You know, show me stuff in the 70s, show me this. And there's like this weird number 2037 was like some kind of great big obstacle. Like, oh, okay, that's information. And so I said, okay, how do we wind our way? There's stuff coming down the pipe, which is major challenges to food supply, pandemics uh, coming in the, from the viral end of things, uh, and then sea level rise and saltwater incursion into coastal industrial complexes. Uh, so I started researching all of this and I met an admiral in, from the US Navy when I was in Qatar in the Middle East. And we formed a partnership and we're forming a partnership to actually get ready for this and to get ready for it we're going to do it in a very nerdy kind of a way we're just going to cut her itself as realized they didn't handle sea level rise as an issue and the whole country is in this uproar that after the fifa world cup is done in 2022 they're going to have to go back to the planning stage because they screwed up they they had a one-inch rainfall last December, which flooded the whole country, and, and they have no understreet drainage. They're building a tube system to connect these bloody stadiums that is going to be inundated. And so they're like, well, wait a minute, we got to start doing studies now. Google and Facebook went to the local county here saying, what do we do about $6 billion of campuses built at sea level on the bay? What is the plan for the seawall? What is the plan for anything? And Admiral Hayes said, 
we need a national and an international convention. We need to get a group of people together. And this is not about the emissions problem. It's not about that. It's about preparing civilization from agriculture to health to uh, water level, sea level rise, everything. And it's it really literally is about infrastructure prep that we have to be under construction by 2030 all over the planet. So we have to mobilize. And and I you know people always ask me what about the politicians and all that. I said we can just ignore that because there's already a critical mass of interest, but there's nowhere to go for help. So we're standing up climate mitigation associates as a group uh, of hundreds of experts internetworked in a community sharing blueprints <clears throat> the PIM thing to generate a response in advance of the first big emergencies which haven't started yet uh, planning out so we're we're ready and as the admiral says there's a huge difference between a surprise attack hitting your position and having 24 hours notice that the enemy is approaching there's a huge difference in all of your response and for military people and we do have 24 hours notice. And, and so it's, this will land very well, I think, with uh, big sections of humanity and we'll just get underway. We'll have hundreds of billions in finance will move oh, towards investment. Just fantastic. So, so that one was um, like the same thing, dialing into the field through time, getting all this stuff. And then, um, you know, then stuff just started happening like my friend Dave Mopley. Uh, who was Apple's arborist and planted 7,000 hot climate oak trees in Cupertino at Apple's new campus that Steve and him kind of co-designed all that, a $7 billion campus. And they decided to plant oak trees from Tucson and Mexico to be tolerant toward future conditions. And I went to see Dave in, uh, last fall and he said, I just figured it out. I said, what do you, what do you mean you just figured it out? What is going to happen to California in the mid to late 30s? Because hurricanes are punching through Arizona, getting more powerful. So they dump all their rain in Arizona. Now they're dumping it into California. They'll get so powerful that they'll push to the Southland and they'll drive up through the Central Valley and the coast and they'll dump tropical rain on the Central Valley. And if in August and September, in October. And if you go to those farmers and big agricultural interests and say, this is going to be a, a, a normal thing, they're going to say, we're going to lose everything. We've just lost the Central Valley. And so that was another clue of where to go and say, we need investment now. We need to study this scenario. This is going to kill all the oak trees in California too, with fungal infections. Fungi will just take over and they're gone. So it turns out that Dave and Steve Jobs uh, what did an active forest migration un unwittingly into Cupertino to spread genes because oak trees are promiscuous and they breed with each other to give the genes of toleration for literally hurricanes, cyclonic storms that will be hitting the state in the 2040s, just like in the movie Blade Runner 2049. So it's like that's another thing of the field. So now it's like, okay, dance with me. Let's, I need a volunteer to build a website. I need. I can't run this whole thing. It's just like, I'm 57. It's just going to be, it needs millennials. And so now they're, they're, they're showing up. And I'm like, hey, we need to set this network up. There's plenty of consulting business. Everyone's going to be supported really well. And there's going to be a multi-trillion dollar investment heading this way in the, in the 2030s that we can be, you can be part of. 
and we'll bridge. We, we need another 500 years to work all this out. Human civilization, if we had another 500 years to do our healing work, to develop our understanding of ecosystems, to get our psychology in better health, and to do what you're doing with these fantastic, to bring humans back from isolation, we need like hundreds of years. And if in the middle of all that comes a massive climate change disaster with methane release and stuff and violent this, we have to get ready to bridge over because we just really need that time to work it out. I, I actually think, yeah, I mean, my gut feeling is you know, what, what, to use your lovely language, which I'll, I'll use today, although I, actually in one of my books, I do call it the field. Um, it's like the thing uh, last fall, I stopped everything, um, just was told stop. So I just stopped, didn't take on any more engagements. I uh, didn't know what I would do. And I knew I had to wait and would get what you, what you called a download. And what my download was, was uh, right. Okay. So you, you individuals, we it was to, to, to frame the philosophy around the idea mm. of individuals becoming individuals and, mm. and to take that, all that spiritual stuff, which felt like, you know, yeah, disappearing off or all that stuff. And instead go, no, it's through the individual, the individual, but we the individual needs to know now that the individual is the universe. And that's, I think will be accelerated by the things you're talking about because it, it, it isn't like, Oh, well one day it's like, no, now we need, and it, 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 that containment, that can, that pressure, pressure, I think is the thing which can wake us up to the fact that we're not separate from nature, that we're not separate from each other. And that ultimately we are the universe. What else could we be? But the universe, <laughs> it's yeah. like, there is nothing else we could be. Is there? You know, we yeah. are, we're, we're, we are the universe. Of we course. are the universe and, and the universe is saying, go team, go. Yeah. Right. And the, and the, You're the, so we really need to have something where we can have that sense of unity and that what happens when people get it is such a sense of service, such a sense of love and also a contact to a greater wisdom. And then suddenly all of those things that, you know, things that you're talking about, which seem like, wow, that's a huge vision, um, a necessary one. You know, I go back to what you mentioned with Edgar Mitchell. We went to the moon. Why did we go to the moon? Because a whole lot of people decided to go. And, and the, 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 it's a, it's a, it is about this time, is about us really grasping this opportunity to, to wake the fuck up. And, it, and, and you know, that will give us the creativity we need. I think you're absolutely right, Tim. And we are waking up just in time uh, because geeks like me we like projects so the apollo project unified all these people on this yeah. wonderful i mean it was the best times of their lives yeah so this project to bridge human civilization over overcoming challenges will, will create a huge yeah. unification and if we're yeah. doing it not out of just freaking uh, make a buck or running from trauma or running from yeah self-inadequacy as we see in a lot of the so-called leadership we're doing it out of a gift to generations hundreds of years in the future we're going to we're going to make sure that they have health care and that they have spiritual inquiry and it's and meaning arts and isn't it it's like know. it's like it's like the biggest thing that the human soul needs is meaning people people who have meaning can do extraordinary things people without meaning curl up and die and 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 there is so much meaning available. And yet the mainstream, the thing which the, the, 
the, the state of things that needs to pass has run out of meaning. And partly I think that's been to do with science. You know, the, the mainstream, it's such a bleak vision of what life is. It's so cold and meaningless and empty because it's got all the science you've talked about, but none of the feel. And because mm -hmm. of that, it's left everyone high and dry in a materialistic universe, both materially and ethically and, and consumerist and all of that. And yet from that, there is such a hunger I see reaching out that I it just feels like to me, the image is always the Berlin Wall. You lived through that like I did. And that was never going to happen, was it, when we were young? That was, it was just never going to happen. And then one day. Yeah, I, I went up, I went happened. to Berlin, I bashed a piece out of it. Yeah, well done. Yeah, I went through it too. And it's just like, and it, I went up and I, I set up a lab in Prague right after it fell and a software lab. Yeah. Wow. Wow. It's so cool. And, so, and you know, it, in the end, um, this is sort of leaving us with this, this, what do we do kind of thing, maybe an answer, a partial answer. When I was seeing that silver spire climbing and I was seeing how high up we were perched, how precarious it all seemed, there was this black shape moving around the base of it. I thought, what on earth? And I realized that that black shape, its entire intent, even though it wasn't intelligence, it was just the physics of the universe trying to pull down the spire. Because the universe is expanding ever faster, according to people we talk to, because it's trying to dissolve all this complexity and go back to the basic rest state that Guth describes at MIT and others. And it's trying, it's this natural tendency for the cosmos to pull things down. And I realized, okay, that little black snake-like thing, you know, it has to be a snake, you know, for us, um, <laughs> is trying to pull this thing down. And all it needs is a single asteroid impact. It just needs, it needs crazy humans to set off nukes or something. It just needs something. And I said, well, how do I counter that? I, I'm now seeing the totality of all of evolution right in one thing. I get it. I'm going to focus my attention on that little black bugger. So I focused my attention. And it was moving around the base, trying to find a way in to knock this thing down, topple the thing, whatever. And it, by me having attention on it, it was uncomfortable. It sort of froze and it sort of started moving and it started moving off. And I said, I am not letting you out of my sights. I am paying attention. And I was beseeching the universe itself, like, pay attention look how rare we are look what you created you know just pay a freaking attention we're here okay just 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 saying and then this this thing which could have been called the second law or entropy or something started to move faster and faster and i would not give up my gaze on it and then it rippled did a backflip and i saw it rippling light and it went out of this universe it went into another physics that i couldn't follow and it was gone. And I realized the lesson here, even against things like that, is our attention. Our attention can sustain this miracle. I, well, let, that, that's, that's a beautiful, beautiful place to bring this to an end. My, my whole focus over the last period of creativity for me has been on exactly that. And I've just done a retreat and, and with my uh, international community of individuals uh, a whole focus on look that attention loving attention specifically loving attention is the yeah. most oh. it, it's the most emergent thing in the universe the universe mm. has come to this and it felt like i'm always looking in my philosophy what i do i think is i'm always looking for that the simple way of 
the, 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 not simplistic and, and not too simple, but that insight of, yeah, that's, that's the, the principle here. And the principle that I've been exploring is simply this. The solution is to bring the most emergent thing to the less emergent things. Mm. That's the simple, that's the, that's the principle, whatever it is. And whether that's dealing with, you know, society, one's own soul, and specifically this thing you're saying, you know, with, with what's facing us globally with, with climate change. This is the most emergent thing in the universe, as far as we know, certainly where we are, is, our, is this attention, loving attention from that place of individuality. Let's, mm -hmm. If we bring that to this problem, to any problem, that's, that's, our, that's our best bet. And because it's linked to the, the field, I think it's... I, I'm, I, there's an optimism in me in the face of it all. The huge, it's, it's, the, it's the relationship with what you call the field God, the, 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 the immense intelligence which is arising from the cosmos, the, the, the love of this unity consciousness, that despite everything, to how terrifying it is, there feels like such a goodness that if, we, if, the, if we wake up to it, if we pay it, if we, if we find it, and then we bring that loving attention into the world, I think mm. we'll be all right. I think that's beautifully said, Tim.